0: We are back with On Second Thought from GPBM Virginia Prescott. When Jared Yates Sexton's grandma researched their family tree, she discovered a long line of scofflaws, debtors, drunkards, and -and out-and-out criminals. The working-class men he grew up with in Linton, Indiana, could never quite get ahead, especially as industrial jobs dried up. But in their homes, their power was absolute, often maintained by violence, intimidation, and a rigid masculinity that was toxic to their families, communities, and to themselves. These are the men that Sexton writes about in The Man They Wanted Me to Be. It's his memoir of struggling to fit that tradition, that traditional version of maleness, as well as an examination of research on how these traits measurably harm the mental and emotional health of those men and the public. Jared Yates Sexton is Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Georgia Southern University and joins me in the studio. Jared, welcome. Thank you. So you use the term white patriarchal masculinity in the book. What does that term mean to you?
1: So the white patriarchy is a, a large umbrella term that that covers a lot of, of, of ground. Basically, it's the idea that society is sort of organized um, for the preference of, of white men. Um, that can be through laws. That can be through customs or traditions. But basically, it means that men socially, politically, economically are often on top of a pyramid of women and uh minority populations. And
0: you saw that when you were growing up in rural, working-class Indiana town. Men helped you form that picture, like your father. What were, they, what were they showing you about what it meant to be a man?
1: Well, so the men I grew up with, um, in a lot of ways, they, they, you know, looking back, they were very sad individuals. They weren't able to live their dreams. They weren't able to reach a certain level that they were always striving after. But what they had was their labor, Right. They got to basically put themselves into their jobs. They exhausted themselves. They broke their bodies. But at the end of the day, the, the bargain that they made was they were happy with their labor. And when they came home, they were in charge. And everybody in the home basically uh, took care of their whims. And there were punishments if that didn't happen. And and that's how the the white patriarchy in that particular instance was enforced. Um, the The women were made to take care of the house and take care of the family. And the boys, in the family were taught this system of behavior by emotional, physical, verbal abuse.
0: And that is certainly something that you encountered in your life. Your father was, um, you know, a sad man in his own way, but he and your mom split up fairly early, and you had a series of stepfathers who were just rigid. Uh, but you, But you see also in this, in looking at generations and generations of men with this reinforced masculinity, there's a real vulnerability in that for them too. What did you find?
1: Absolutely there is. Um th- there's a real sadness to it. Um the, the thing you think about men is that they are, they're hard and they're invincible and they're strong, and, and that's what they project. But deep down, and this is the thing that I had to come to terms with, is I always felt uncomfortable with that rigid masculinity. I always thought that I was alone in that. But when I talk to other men, particularly the ones who overcompensate and pretend to be macho or strong or invincible, it turns out when you, they're honest, they feel the same way. They, 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 are. It's impossible to live up to those expectations because the, it, that masculine ideal doesn't actually exist. Mm. Men are vulnerable. Men are real. They have emotions. And the fact that they are taught to suppress them, it hurts them. And, and that leads to a whole range of terrible behaviors that hurts themselves and everyone around them.
0: Yeah, I'd love to talk about some of the data on that. But I want to get to that point that you said, you know, that they can't get there. It is unattainable on some level, which opens them up to sh- shame because they're not measuring up. And there's this kind of cycle of shame and trying to overcompensate for the shame. How does that play out? Give us some examples. Of oh,
1: that. It's, a, it's a terribly tragic thing. So men are basically taught from the time they are very, very small that the only acceptable means of emotional expression is either anger or violence, right? So they are basically completely walled off from their emotions. They're taught that they're not supposed to cry. They're not supposed to express themselves. They're not supposed to communicate. And so what happens when they feel shame, and this can be economic shame, this can be at work, this can be in the family, this can be socially. Whenever they feel shame, those men who are walled off they react violently. This is how abuse happens. This is how uh, verbal and physical abuse happens. This is how they end up hurting themselves through um, self-medication, through using drugs, through using substances, through putting themselves in really dangerous situations. They are trying to overcompensate for what is a natural uh, uh, you know, emotion.
0: Right. And for you, uh, there is a... As you say, there is a, a this this way of life is long past its expiration date. That's how you put it. The male centric occupations dried up. Men no longer had that option. That s- connection to their esteem and their sense of value with their work. But is it over? Is that expiration date over? I mean, if we look at the sort of contemporary politics and recent legislations about women and, and women reproductive. Right? do you think it's over?
1: Well, this crisis that we're currently in is actually this weird political uh, uh, reckoning with what's happening. So we have industry that's gone away, right? We have a lot of these traditionally, quote unquote, masculine jobs that are no longer there. So for instance, my family are laborers, they're factory workers, they're miners, you know, they're they're people who have always been taught to do industry. Those jobs are gone. And quite frankly, they never enjoyed them in the first place. They, they broke their bodies, right? But What happens is they are now being bolstered by political movements. And we're definitely seeing this with uh, the rise of Donald Trump, who tells him he's going to bring back their factories. They're going to bring back the coal mines. These are jobs that are not coming back, but it gives them political identity. And so what they're doing is they're actually calling back angrily for these old ideas from where masculinity came from that aren't there anymore and won't exist. So they're actually holding back progress that would help themselves and everyone else.
0: And these are the men that you could fit in with that Trump rallies uh, during the 1926-16 campaign. Um, You were covering them. You were writing about them, and your articles were getting picked up online. Eventually, a lot of people following you as somebody who could pass, I guess.
1: That's right. I had to learn how to basically walk among people because I had always learned as a child and, and as a young man how to be like them. So actually, weirdly enough, what, what crystallized for me as I was going to these Donald Trump rallies and I spent a lot of time in these circles is it was a lot of the men that I recognized from my childhood and they had found a political umbrella to be under. And that identity, um, weirdly enough, is what has propelled a, a lot of this movement.
0: Right. Uh uh, but how is your read of this you know different from the forgotten men those left behind uh, the narrative we've heard especially frequently since the 20 20- 16 election that men are under attack. They have nothing of meaning for them anymore. How is your narrative of that different?
1: Well, I think, again, that's a political story. I think they get told that this is something that they have to hold on to when, in fact, they don't want it anyway, right? Like, when you go to work at a factory, you go to work at a mine, what you're doing is you're ransoming the future of your life. You're giving away your body. You're going to live a shorter life. And men, studies show time and time again, are actually miserable. They're now, like, they're, uh, their expectations of lifespan are going down because they're miserable living out these identities. But they're told constantly that they can do it, and they have all these insecurities that are born out from the time they're young, so they fight the idea of progress. So they actually push against any sort of change. And, and the truth is, they have everything to gain from this. They have happiness. They have better relationships. They have longer lives. They have, uh, you know, better careers that they can get from this. But there's something uh, born into them, something taught to them when they're young that, that makes them push against that.
0: But how about for you? This is something that you had to buck up against, this incredible pressure to fit in, even though, uh, as your stepmother called you, soft when you were young. You were a sensitive kid. You wanted to talk about Napoleon and, and the kids at school would have none of it so how do you get out how do you, you went away to university first in your family to do that how do people get out of that kind of entrapment.
1: It's a really large problem, but the first step of all of it is communication. Uh, What I found, and going back to my father, I I found that talking to my father, who was the type of person who would have supported this movement, I started talking to him about um, his experiences and what he had gone through. And what he ended up telling me, this person who had terrorized me and abused me because he thought I was soft, it turned out when he was a kid, he was soft too. Mm -hmm. And he had been abused by his own father and basically had been beaten into him that he had to be strong and he had to be like a real man. So he was always overcompensating. He was always playing a role. So the first step is looking at this, and this goes back to these um, traditions and customs. We have to look at them and realize that they're artificial. And the moment that we start actually considering what masculinity is, instead of just accepting it blindly, we start to realize it's full of contradictions. And and men know deep down that this isn't real. They know that they're playing a character. And so the moment that they can have some communication or uh, an expression, they start to realize what, what a fraud this thing is.
0: I'm speaking with Jared Yates Sexton. He's author of The Man They Wanted Me To Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. Yeah, that's one of the things late in his life as his health was in decline. Your father says to me, "You you start to spend more time with him. Uh, Initially, there's a lot of tension, you know, he's clinging to a lot of his old values, but at one point he says to you, do you ever feel like you're wearing a disguise? That is just heartbreaking. He'd spent a lot of his life posing on some level, performing masculinity.
1: And yeah. My father, my father was the type of person who like on a Saturday, he would watch a NASCAR race followed by a showing of Patton, right? <laughs> he drove around town in big pickup trucks and he he gathered guns. He would say these fascist, racist things all the time. And I didn't know who he was, but eventually he confided in me that he had not had um, intellectual or emotional intimacy for 30 years. And he, he had felt so alone in it and so afraid in it that he had always just performed these things. He'd always just, been around other men being racist and fascist. Eventually he traded in his truck for a Prius and he became incredibly open and, and liberal and caring and emotional. But that's the whole point of it is I think that once men start to realize that this is not just a role they've been playing, but it's actually a prison that they have put themselves in. I think that the the alternative looks really good.
0: Well, but he disguised his illness too. And that is another thing in, your, in the research that you quote in the book about how men do not take care of themselves, especially admitting that kind of healthy vulner- or help bodily vulnerability would be too
1: much. So my dad died um, at the really young age of 59 from rampant diabetes, which is a, you know, a disease that you should be able to take care of, that should be able to be handled. But he didn't go to the doctor for three decades. And right here is where we find the contradiction of masculinity. Men are supposed to be strong and brave and unflinching. They're terrified of going to the doctor right? Because the doctor can tell them something that makes them vulnerable. And so what they do is they don't go to the doctor and they have all of these chronic conditions, heart conditions, diabetes, uh, you know, uh, obesity, all these things that they can go get taken care of. But they're so afraid to walk in that door. They're afraid to get medical help. They're afraid to get mental health. And so what they do is they they condemn themselves to lead shorter, more miserable lives, which is a a terrible contradiction when you really look at it about the, the man who's supposed to be unflamed. Lynching, but he can't go to a doctor's office.
0: Well, we mentioned before that you go through the kind of history of how these roles became adopted by men, and part of it is advertising. The mass media marketing age really helped reinforce like what women's roles are and what men's roles are. But now we are seeing much more in advertising the caring dad, you know, the one who's changing the diapers or taking care of the kids. Do you think that there is a gap between how that that traditional idea is being projected on television in mass media and how people really feel it in their lives.
1: I I, I think the two are definitely linked. Um, Going back to the mass media age, um, you you have things like Freudian attempts, right, to make men and women feel like they're not... they're, they're not adhering to their roles. So they have to buy products, right? A man has to buy a truck. He has to buy a lawnmower. I just saw the other day the weirdest thing. They now have male foundation, but they call it war paint. <laughs> and, and, and so what happens is that that men learn that they have to pay a monetary price in order to be a man. But we are seeing uh, a, a difference now. Like you said, we're seeing like the caring father, right? We're seeing uh, the, the man who will take care of his kids or who will help out around the kitchen. Those things uh, change things over time. But the problem is that a lot of the men who need to realize that, they see that as an attack, right? They they turn on the TV and every time they turn the channel they see an attack on themselves because they are so, so uh, grounded in this old idea and this this traditional idea of masculinity that anything that says different is an attack on them.
0: Well, I think many of us have people in our lives, you know, men who are bound by this traditional ideal. My own father, he's now deceased, but he couldn't talk about his war experience, you know, like so many men that you mentioned in the book. Very shut down about that. We see that in our communities, in our workplaces. So in situations where we see this, how do you confront it? How do you have that conversation with, in a way that doesn't put someone's back up against the wall.
1: Well, and and so much of that performance is all about not having your back against the wall, right? In my family, the way that it's expressed is, you know, insecure men cleaning their guns at the table, right, or talking about their exploits. And what happens when they leave the room is the people who are left in the room are like, I feel so bad for him. this is a really sad situation. I wish that he he would feel better. And they know it's about insecurity. The problem is we have to take that conversation from something that we say when they leave the room to something that we say when they're in the room. And we have to start talking to people and not just accepting that this is the way it has to be, which is a terrible term that we've been saying for so long that just perpetuates this behavior. We have to tell men who are insecure and overcompensating that it's okay, that they are loved, even if they fall short of the Masculine ideal, we still love them, we still value them, and there's value beyond that performance.
0: Well, there's so much that you reveal personally about your road to get here, Jared, that I r- encourage readers to pick up uh, because it's a it's a dramatic and winding road and very profound. But do you ever find yourself, you know, defaulting to those old positions that you so long strove to inhabit, this maleness?
1: Oh, absolutely. I had a a really hard time with it. You know, I never felt comfortable with it as a kid, and I went through all this abuse. I, I... I hated the idea of masculinity. I wanted to get away from it. But I found later on in life that when I would have some sort of setback or or some sort of insecurity, I would find myself performing the idea again. And the problem is that once you're around that, you're around those old patriarchal ideas, it infects you and it's with you for the rest of your life. So I basically have to take stock every single day and try and understand why I'm doing the things I am and why I behave the way that I do. And you have to be aware of that in order to, to move past it.
0: All right. Uh, we just got 30 seconds but you know Gillette campaign uh, right before the Super Bowl Defending, creating this idea of reinforcing the idea of men as sensitive to the Me Too movement. A lot of clapback against that. What did you
1: see? Well, I, I think on one hand it's good because, again, mass media has a way of affecting these things. But we also need to keep an open eye towards what corporations are doing because in so many ways we're seeing these progressive movements they are being monetized. So we have to realize that, yes, it's good that we're moving in that direction and we're having that conversation, but we also need to realize who we are and why.
0: Jared Yates Sexton, thank you so much. Thank Jared teaches creative writing at Southern, Georgia Southern University. He's a contributing writer at Salon. He's written for the New York Times, and he's author of *The Man They Wanted Me to Be*. Among those things he inherited from his dad, well, a little story about John Prine. We're hearing a little bit of him right now. This is on Second Thought. Four flag draped casket on a local heroes here.